right, let's open with another word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us now as we study a little bit about music and worship service and what it is that you have designed for us. And we just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so for our new people, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, principles of music as far as what God's divine order for music is, um, the types of, of music that are uplifting to God. Now I want to spend this next time talking about music specifically within the worship service and in, in the sanctuary and the church service, um, what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy have to say about that. And if we have time, and maybe into the next class if we don't, um, I'm going to talk about music and evangelism. Um, my husband is an evangelist. We work with AFCO, so we work with a lot of evangelistic series. And one thing that I've been really um, convicted about is the lack of musical knowledge when it comes to evangelism. And so it's been a, a real burden for me. So I want to share some things about that as well. Um, but let's go ahead and get started in our talk. And I want to start by reading a quote to you. Um, actually, we're not exactly on sync here, but that's okay. We'll go ahead and read it. First, I want to tell you what the Adventist Church's literal actual stance is on music within the church. And they say that music is not morally and spiritually neutral. Some may move us to the most exalted human experience. Some may be used by the prince of evil to debase and degrade us, to stir up lust, passion, despair, anger, and hatred. And I wanted to start with this because a lot of people will tell you when it comes to music in church that it is neutral, that basically it's up to us, that we can just decide whatever uh, fits our worship style um, best. But according to the Adventist church as a whole, it states that music is not neutral. So this means that there has to be an answer to this whole music debate. Um, but the problem is, is that, as I read further, there were no principles given as to what the answer really was. So I believe that's why many people are confused and they're left to make up their own mind as to what is the answer. Um, but I, I don't want to look to my church necessarily. I want to look to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and see what the principles are there. You know, we've talked about a lot of things regarding music in the last few classes. We've seen God's ideal plan and how the devil has flipped that around to try and mar his character, to change the view, way we view God. Um, but now I want to talk about this um, more specific issue. And it's a really, really sensitive issue in our church right now. I've known many of church that has been split over this issue of music. Um, we have our more traditional, um, what we would call conservative um, churches, some of which believe, as we've stated already, only hymns and only piano and nothing else. This is the way that we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to do it. On the other hand, you have our more, for lack of a better word, liberal churches with a very lively, free services where they're bringing the drums in and they're you know, bringing in their praise teams and they're doing um, a lot of the contemporary Christian music. So the question is, which is right or are either right? Is there a balance? And I mentioned many times, I believe that there is a balance when it comes to music a godly biblical balance, and that's what I want to find out, and hopefully what I can portray to you as well. So, we are told here, again, that it's not morally, spiritually neutral. 
Well, we want to find out now, so what is the answer? First point that I want to talk about is, in, is that music in worship should be distinct and different from music outside of worship. I'm going to look up a couple of verses with you if you have your Bible. Leviticus 10.10 10 said that, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. So, question, how do we relate this to music? This is a general statement, right? Distinguish between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean. But I believe that we can also relate this to the issue of music. Um, we've talked about some of the unholy music um, that's out there. And God has a lot to say, a lot to warn us about trying to combine the holy with the unholy. Um, there should always be a distinction between the secular and the holy. And so although we've seen certain principles um, regarding all types of music that we listen to on our own personal um, time, we must be especially careful when it comes to the types of music that we listen to within the worship service, within the sanctuary. You know, we know that the sanctuary of the church is it's a holy place. It's, it's where God wants to dwell. When we come to church, it should be completely about Him, about our time of worship to Him. And unfortunately, many times, um, especially in our music time, I believe it becomes about us and our desires and what we want. But we have to remember to keep the secular out there and keep the holy within the church. Uh, another verse, Ezekiel 22:26 says, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. This is repeating itself here, but it specifically talks about the priests. Um, in other words, the priests, or our, our come, or nowadays our pastors, have a big responsibility, don't they? Um, the Bible has a lot to say about the responsibility of the priest making sure of keeping holy things holy and not to combine them with the secular. Did you know that, um, and I found this when I was doing research, that there are a lot of churches nowadays that are sending out surveys to the unchurched, people that don't attend um, church anywhere, and they're asking them what they think that their church services should be like. Okay. So a lot of people just on the surface would say, well, that's a good idea. You know, we want to attract people, so we'll ask them um, what they like. So in a sense, we might can kind of rationalize this, but when you really look at it, this is completely backwards, um, asking the world what, what we should do in our church service. Because the people in the world, do they know how to worship God? No. Who is supposed to teach them how to worship God? God's people, right? We should be setting the standard. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we should throw culture and our, the era that we live in out the window. We need to pay attention to those things, and we need to try and attract people. But at the same time, going to the world and asking them what type of music and what type of entertainment and things should be taking place in the church service, that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to gently lead and guide them to know what is true and what he desires for worship. Um, again, we've talked about this, but again, we would never dream of bringing worldly music into the sanctuary, right? I mean, we wouldn't do that. The sanctuary is a sacred place. We need to bring in sacred music. Or would we? Well, what did we learn in the last class? 
does just putting Christian words to maybe ungodly music make it godly? Well, no. Interesting. In Haggai, we're given more light on this subject. Haggai 2, 12, and 13. And it says, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. So what's the point here? We're not talking about wine and meat and dead bodies, but the principle is when you take something holy and you combine it with something unholy, does the holy make the unholy holy? Or does the unholy make the holy unholy? Did you get that? <laughs> According to Haggai, it makes the holy unholy. Simple principle, but I think it can be applied to music as well. We can't say, well, we're going to take the music from the world bring it into the church, give it Christian lyrics, and all of a sudden it's holy. It doesn't work that way. Um, and we, we saw how the devil has tried to deceive us in the area of music, and not just in lyrics. We are also told that those in the heavenly courts listen to the praise and thanksgiving from God's people on this earth. Did you know that angels are listening to us when we sing together in congregation? And, and the Spirit of Prophecy says that they want to join with us in singing, in praise, and rejoicing. The union of worship between heaven and earth makes it especially important to select appropriate music in the church service. Now I want to read a, a quote that kind of emphasizes this. This comes from Testimony, Volume 6, page, six, page uh, 367. It says, Let us all bear in mind that in every assembly of the saints below are angels of God listening to the testimonies, songs, and prayers. Let us remember that our praises are supplemented by the choirs of the angelic host above. Then, as you meet from Sabbath to Sabbath, sing praises to him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, let the heart's adoration be given. Let the love of Christ be the burden of the speaker's utterance. Let it be expressed in simple language and songs of praise. So what is she saying? Basically, she's saying the angels are listening. They want to sing with us. So if that's the case, I believe that when we choose the music that we're going to be singing or playing in church, we should always ask ourselves the questions. Would the holy angels of heaven want to sing this with me? Can I picture the choir of heaven in here with us singing this music? Or would they be embarrassed and run away? And, you know, it's a very solemn thought, but this is something we're encouraged to think about. Holy angels want to sing with us, but holy angels only sing holy music. And we've seen already that there are certain types of music, even with Christian lyrics, that is not holy in the sight of God. So let's look at some points now as to how this music in church should be distinct or should be different. Um, from the music in the world, or even sometimes music that may not be bad, but music that we listen to, um, how should it be different? First of all, the lyrics should be different, the instruments should be different, and the voices should be different. Okay, so let's look at these one at a time. Um, going to the first one here, lyrics in worship, 
in worship music should uplift and praise God. Remember that we're singing to the Lord, not to ourselves. Avoid in vain repetition, shallow or vague, vague lyrics. We've talked about this already, but I want to emphasize it again in specifically dealing with worship. Um, remember that we're singing to the Lord, not to ourselves. And I've been in so many different worship services. You know, in, in AFCA, we have the privilege of working with a lot of different churches. Um, and we've seen a lot of interesting things. We've worked with a lot of really great churches um, and, and some maybe not so as great. But God blesses in everyone regardless. But we've, it's really been an eye-opener in some cases. Um, and a lot of times when you have these you know, praise teams up there singing and, and they're singing these, these different songs, it really looks more like an entertainment, um, a performance. And even sometimes the words to the songs that they're singing are, are very shallow, and it's a very, as we mentioned before, selfish type of singing. Um, and you kind of lose the sense that this is about God, that this is worship to God. It's more about how is this going to make me feel? Um, how, what is this going to do for me? Also, talking about vain repetitions again, those 711 songs we talked about, seven words 11 times. Um, make sure that the music is deep and meaningful. This is sacred worship to God. Um, this isn't just for our enjoyment. This is to the God of heaven. So secondly, we see that the instrument should be different. God was very specific with what kind of music was played in the Old Testament sanctuary. Now the Old Testament sanctuary should be an example of what takes place in our sanctuary today, right? There's a lot of examples, a lot of things that we can take from that. And God was very, very specific. He was specific about what the priests wore, about what type of articles were in the sanctuary, about what took place, and he was also specific about the music. So question, what type of instruments were used in the sanctuary? All right, as I've done, as I've done study, there's lots of different places. There's not just one place that lists them all necessarily, but you have to read it in its context. Um, but these are the instruments that I found that were used in the sanctuary. You have the lyre, the harp, the trumpet, ram's horn, and cymbals. Interesting, the cymbals were the only percussion instrument that were ever allowed in the sanctuary. Um, one instrument that was not used in the sanctuary, but that was often used in secular war, um, um, triumph, victory type occasions, was the tambourine. Now immediately, you know, someone gave me this objection once before, well, so, but they use the tambourine, so it's not bad, so we can listen to it all the time. Well, okay, I want to I get into this, there now. so drums are okay all the time because they use the tambourine in secular music. Yes? Right, just to point out, I think that well, the only instance I know of the tambourine being used is in Exodus 16, in the, uh, the, after the passage of the Red Sea. Right, it was a, a victory, like, and they, they passed over the Red Sea is when they used the tambourine. And, and, and I want to make this point, actually. Um, I don't want to just stop here, but going on here, um, we want to answer this question. So why was the tambourine not used in the sanctuary? Okay. Um, first of all, there are percussion instruments which are always played appropriately. Remember we talked about some of those percussion instruments in an orchestra. The cymbals are one of those instruments. Um, have you ever heard a cymbal played in a way that causes you to want to get up and dance? or that causes your flesh to rise, that you just want to play that heavy 2-4 signature and you're just going to rock out with those cymbals, is not really possible, right? I mean, cymbals are just kind of, it's an emphasizing um, aspect to the song. 
And it was kind of humorous, but it makes the point. So there are some percussion instruments that are always played appropriately. Um, there are percussion instruments which can be played appropriately or inappropriately. The tambourine is one of these instruments. Now, we talked about this already as well. There are a lot of percussion instruments within an orchestra that can be used to play classical music in a very appropriate way. But there are some instruments that, when put together, can be played in a very inappropriate way that emphasizes the heavy beat, the 2-4 time signature, and becomes more of that type of music that we have already talked about, um, which goes against God's principles. The tambourine is one of the instruments that I've heard it played inappropriately, and I've heard it played, played, uh, been played appropriately. Um, then there are also percussion instruments which are almost never played appropriately, which we talked about this. The trap set is one of those percussion instruments that was specifically designed to play rock, jazz music. Um, and once again, the trap set was not ever used in the Bible because it didn't exist in the Bible. Um, so we don't even have to address this when it comes to worship. We're just talking about a tambourine, not even the trap set, okay? But people will, will argue. I've heard this argument before. So they used the tambourine, even though it wasn't in the sanctuary, but they used it, so it's okay. The point is this. God thought that the sanctuary was so sacred and so holy that even something as innocent as a tambourine was not allowed in the sanctuary for the simple fact that it might be played inappropriately or it might distract from the service. Was the tambourine an evil instrument? No, obviously there were times when they used it in victory. Now, I don't believe that they were playing it in a way that I've heard it sometimes played today, but regardless of that, God said, I don't even want a chance, even a small little chance, that it could be played inappropriately, that it could distract from the message, from the sacredness. Don't even bring it in the sanctuary. Which brings me to my next question. If that was the case with something as innocent as a tambourine, what about the trap set? Something that, in my opinion, at least 99.9% .9 of the time, is not played appropriately. Why, even, I've, and I've heard someone say, well, if I wanted to, I could play the trap set appropriately. My question is, same thing with the tambourine. If you could do that, it's so close to the fact that you could play inappropriately, why even bring it into the sanctuary? This is a sacred place. Don't even cross that gray area. Just keep it out. This is the example that we have in the Bible. And um, just because the trap set is not mentioned in the Bible, the principle is still there. It is a sacred and a holy place that God wants the most heavenly, sacred music to be in. So, even, and I want to bring this point up, but even if you're not entirely sure on the issue of drums um, in general, you know, we've talked about not just drums, we, we've clarified drums are not evil in themselves, but it's how they're played and it's the overemphasis of the beat, right? But even if you're not convinced on that issue, if what I've said just doesn't convince you, um, and if not, I encourage you to keep studying this issue, but when it comes to using them in church, in the worship service, think about this. Um, this was something that I, I was convicted on long before I was convicted on the issue of, of the heavy drum beat in my music. If I were to go in a church, any church, and I was to have a track, um, soundtrack to sing to, and I got up and I had um, beautiful, just godly, instrumental music, 
and I sang this song. You may have people in the church that are really just into this contemporary, we've got to have drums, music, in, and I'm really defensive of that. If I sing my beautiful instrumental song, will those people be upset because I didn't use drums? I've sang in a lot of churches. I've never had anybody be upset. Actually, 99% of the time, they don't even notice. All they can say is, wow, that was really nice. Praise the Lord. Question two. If I was to go into that same church and use a track with a heavy drum beat, would there be people that would be offended? Yes or no? Absolutely. Now, we don't go strictly on people's feelings. I, I've shared principles from the Bible already, but I'm just saying regardless of all of that, before I was even convicted on the issue of certain types of music, I was convicted on this. I knew that I wanted to be the biggest blessing to as many people as I possibly could. Why would I want to risk the opportunity of not blessing someone by using a track that would be inappropriate or offensive to certain people? When if I used beautiful, godly, instrumental music, I could bless everybody. Why even go there? And yet so many people, this is kind of their pet peeve. You know, they, they got to stand up on their podium and, and we have a message to get across that we're free to listen to whatever we want. But my point is, even if you have that opinion, why would you want to leave some people out of that blessing? Bless everybody. And, uh, and so that's just a logical point that I thought of um, that really kind of hit close to home. Um, another quote here from Selected Messages. The things you have described, the Lord has shown me, when we read this already, would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. That will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions, and this will be called the moving of the Holy Spirit. I thought that this was worth repeating because it's such a bold statement, and it's so close to what we're seeing happening in our churches today. Um, and then I think this is definitely something that we need to focus on. So why do you think she specifically mentions the drums here? You know, as we've seen through what we've studied, we know that the heavy drum beat, that the way that the drums are played, they take away from the message of the song, don't they? They lead to emotionalism, which we've seen is not from the Lord. He wants the emotions to follow the reason, not the other way around. And they're not a part of God's ideal plan of music. It's not the way God created music. It was not for the, the beat to be the main part of the song. The type of music that Ellen White was hearing was obviously very offensive to her. <laughs> um, she's pretty strong about what she says there. And obviously it was very offensive to God. Unfortunately, this is the type of music that's being played in a lot of our churches. And I really, I want to emphasize, I really believe that there are a lot of godly, sincere people um, that are encouraging this. Um, but as we were um, told earlier, that sometimes people are sincerely wrong. And, and I'm sharing this with you because I believe that it is an issue in our churches. And although we should be loving and kind and not point fingers and condemn people, um, we still have an obligation to, for us personally to stand up for what we know is right. And, um, and I believe that this is something that's really taking over our churches that is really offensive to God. And it's not the type of worship that he has um, ordained for us. So let's go on to the next point as far as um, music and worship. And this is that the voice that is sung in church 
should be clear, humble, and be singing praises to God. In Testimonies, Volume 1, page 146, she says, I saw that all should sing with the spirit and with the understanding also. God is not pleased with jargon and discord. Right is always more pleasing to him than wrong. And the nearer people of God can approach to correct harmonious singing, the more he is glorified, the church benefited, and unbelievers favorably affected. So, when, uh, we'll actually have one more here. I thought I already read that. Okay, so one more quote here. Testimonies, Volume 9, 143. When human beings sing with the spirit and the understanding, heavenly musicians take up the strain and join in the songs of thanksgiving. He who has bestowed upon us all the gifts that enable us to be workers together with God expects his servants to cultivate their voices so that they can speak and sing in a way that all can understand. It's not loud singing that is needed, but clear intonation, correct pronunciation, and distinct utterance. Let all take time to cultivate the voice so that God's praise can be sung in clear, soft tones, not with harshness and shrillness that offend the ear. The ability to sing is the gift of God. Let it be used to his glory. So what does this mean? It's a lot that she says there. It means simply that when at all possible, congregational singing should be good quality singing. Most importantly though, the words should be easy to understand. Now, some of you may be saying, I'm in trouble. I'm not a singer, what am I supposed to do? I can't <laughs> sing. Um, but don't worry, the Bible also says make a joyful noise. <laughs> um, so, but she emphasizes over and over again, cultivating the voice as best you can, but most importantly, making sure that what you're speaking, what you're singing is clear, that you're portraying the message, um, because how can people be blessed by the music if they can't understand what's being said? Um, and she also talks about the importance of listening to each other. So have you ever been into a church where everybody seems to be kind of singing their own song and it just sounds like Babylon? Um, I've been in those churches before. And so she says, listen to each other. Try and be as harmonious as possible in your singing. Um, we may not all be the perfect singers, some of us may be tone deaf, but do the best that you can to sing beautiful praises to God and make sure that the words are clear so that those around you, especially visitors coming to church, can be blessed by the messages. And remember that we're not just singing again to ourselves, we're singing to God. And if we're singing like this, and nobody's listening and no one cares what they sound like, and no one's um, uttering their words clearly, then God cannot be as blessed either. So it's important um, to think about these things. So one more quote regarding uh, vocal solos. And we have a lot of special musics in church, and some of you uh, may be soloists. So what does she say about this in Evangelism, page 510? In some of our churches, I have heard solos that were altogether unsuitable for the service of the Lord's house. The long, drawn-out notes and the peculiar sounds coming in operatic singing are not pleasing to the angels. They delight to hear the simple songs of praise sung in a natural tone. The songs in which every word is uttered clearly in a musical tone are the songs that they join us in singing. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> they take up the refrain that is sung from the heart with the spirit and the understanding. So. Was, was Sister White against vocal solos? 
No, of course not. I mean, we hear stories of her husband, James White, who at times as he was going forward to preach a sermon, he would break out in this solo um, to get people prepared for the message. And she loved to sing herself. She's not against vocal solos, and we'll actually read more later on where she encourages um, solos. However, she says basically that solos should not be showy, they should not be prideful, but that it should be about the Lord and blessing those around us. Many times, um, you know, and, and as a vocalist, I have to really pray about this and to pray that God will keep me humble, that it will be the simple song um, from the heart, and that it's not a big show. Because it says that the angels, that God is not pleased by that. They want to hear the simple, sweet, natural tones from our voice, um, not something where we're just trying to show how many high notes we can hit and how long we can hold out the notes. That's fun, but that's not ministry in music. And so we have to be very careful about that. So this is a summary of this first long point that we just talked about. Should there be a difference between secular music and worship music? Obviously, we've seen several different things that, that show that. And in regards to music in church, there should be as little of us and as much of God as possible. Um, if the words are not edifying or glorifying to God, then it's not meant for the sanctuary. And if the instruments or the voice distract from the message, they're not meant for the sanctuary either. But this next point is very, um, very important to me. Going on the opposite side here is our second point. Music and worship should be enjoyable. Many times we get so stuck in the do's and the don'ts and, and what we can't do and what we can't sing that we forget that Worshipful music should be enjoyable, and it should be a happy time. These are some interesting quotes. Evangelism, page 180. Do not strike one Dolores note. Do not sing funeral hymns. She has a lot to say about these funeral hymns. Um, the next quote, she also says, That which is done for the glory of God should be done with cheerfulness, with songs of praise and thanksgiving, not with sadness and gloom. This is one of my biggest pet peeves ever. <laughs> Go in, yours too. Going into a church and feeling like you are in a funeral home. It's awful. And she specifically says, do not do that. Worship should be a, a happy time. When we sing songs, we should not sing with sad faces and sound like we're dying or falling asleep. We should be happy and joyful and be singing with with liveliness in our voice and with smiles on our faces. Many times people say they're so leery of what we just talked about, about um, you know, the really lively services and the drums in the sanctuary. They're so concerned about that that they go to the opposite extreme. And they say, okay, only hymns in the old hymnal, not even the new one because some of those are, are modern. Um, you know, piano, organ, um, maybe slow, boring, no life, no joy, no happiness. And people come to these churches and they say, what is wrong with you people? You're not happy. You're not joyful. You're not glad to be here. You sound like you're going to a funeral. And we are warned not to do this. It should be a time of wonderful happiness to the Lord. I think a perfect example of this is, I don't know if you guys have heard of Army Bible Camp. Um, it's a, a new seminar that's taking place. Of, it's all practical, how to study your Bible. And I went last year in California, 
and they have some great singers that lead out, um, not just the special music, because they're beautiful as well, but they have these song leaders that just, they believe what they're singing, and they're interactive, and they're trying to get the congregation to sing, and it's so much fun. People come to um, early just to get there in time to sing the songs, because, and it gets them fired up and excited about the message to come. That is what music should be like. It should so fill our hearts with joy and lift us up to heaven that by the time the, the preacher gets up to preach, we are ready to worship God. That's its purpose, not to make us fall asleep so that we really um, keep falling asleep when he preaches. <laughs> so we need to follow the principles that we already learned, obviously, but it doesn't mean that the music has to be boring, old-fashioned, slow. Um, it doesn't have to be somber or serious. If you're in a funeral and someone has passed away, you can sing funeral songs. <laughs> but otherwise, make sure that your songs are joyful to God. Thirdly, music in worship should be interactive. As a part of the religious service, singing is as much an act of worship as is prayer. Indeed, many a song is prayer. I love this quote because so, I mean, so many times when I sing in my personal worship time, it is, it's like a prayer to God. And she says that it is an act of the religious service, of the worship service, like prayer is. And it should be interactive. So if this is true, then singing in church is something that we should all participate in, right? Um, you know, I've been in many churches where this isn't the case either. You look around and although, you know, some people just don't enjoy singing and they don't want to sing. I don't understand people like that. But there are people like that. Um, but, you know, a lot of times the church service is actually set up to discourage congregational singing. Um, instead, it should be encouraged. And I want to share some examples of how sometimes this is done, maybe even unknowingly, um, in church services. First of all, a lot of times, you know, we have this new popular thing, are these large praise teams that get up there, singing groups. But a lot of times they actually discourage congregational singing. I'm going to explain why in a minute. Um, we should pick one or two song leaders who can get the congregation to participate and pick songs that are simple and easy to sing. Um, I'm going to go through them one at a time here so that you can write them down. But, oh, what happened? Ah! Okay, we'll just stay there because I'm scared I'm going to mess it up again. <laughs> so let's go through these one at a time. So large praise teams, this is very, very popular in our church today. And I'm not going to say that praise teams are always bad. Sometimes it works. But the majority of the time, this is what I've, um, I've noticed, is that a lot of times when you have these, I don't know, five to ten people, they get up there, they have all the instruments, and, and they're singing the songs. A lot of times they pick um, newer praise songs that the congregation's not familiar with. And this time can be very fun and enjoyable for the praise team and even entertaining to some of the people in the congregation. But as I've looked around when I've been in these types of churches, a lot of people in the congregation are not singing. They're simply listening because it becomes a performance. It's an entertainment. They're watching the praise team do their little performance and they don't feel the need to participate. But this is very dangerous. We should be participating and interactive in the worship service. And so by doing that, you know, a lot of churches think that they're um, doing a, a good thing, but many times it's, it's actually a disservice to their service. It's another way to have pew warmers 
and, uh, and we don't need more pew warmers. <laughs> um, so pick song leaders who can get the, the congregation to participate. One, two, three song leaders. People that are lively, that are happy, that don't just get up there and say, now we're going to sing song 421. Now we're going to sing song 363. And then they have this frown on their face, and it's just really pitiful. But, and, and sometimes it's hard, and especially in small churches, to find people that are able to do this. And, and if they can't get up there and do it yourself. But, um, you know, make sure that you have a smile on your face, that when the people in the congregation look at you, they say, hey, they believe what they're saying, they believe what they're singing, and it encourages them to sing as well. And also pick songs that are simple and easy to sing. Remember that not everyone is a professional singer. Even though you're up there leading the song, um, you, you may feel like you can handle it, and you know it, and you can learn it. Um, and I'm not saying that you can't ever teach a congregation a new song. But make sure that the majority of your songs are simple, that people know them, or that they're easy to learn. And that's one thing that I love about the hymns. Not that I'm all about just hymns, but they were designed for congregational singing. And so most of them are really simple to learn. Um, and, and so make sure that you're doing this, picking songs that are easy for people to sing. I want to interject something here, and this is something that a lot of people struggle with in our churches, and that is dealing with the young people in our church and music, um, of which I was one not too long ago myself. But, you know, I, this topic of music in church, it's especially difficult for young people, um, very difficult, because they're, they're bombarded with, with popular music and entertainment and TV, everything out there in the world. And so a lot of times the hymns and, and some of the songs that we sing in church, they are boring to young people. But what happens is that the elderly people in the church will say, well, we don't want the young people to be bored and leave the church, so we've got to bring in the popular music into the church, and then we'll keep them here. And you know what I found? I, I've worked with a lot of young people, and I remember the same stuff was going on a few years ago when I was a young person, um, is that sometimes it's true. Sometimes you can attract more young people by that type of music. But all of my friends that were attracted to that type of music that came, they're not in the church anymore. Why is that? <laughs> it's the wrong type of attraction for one thing. Yeah, well, once again, we're bringing stuff from the world into the church to try and reach the world. There's no substantial, there's nothing there. Right. Solid. Exactly, nothing solid. And that's the thing, it's not real, it's not lasting. It's a temporary fix to a very long-term problem. And so this is what I tell people when they, they say, well, you know, you're teaching all these principles about music and and you're telling us to sing these hymns and to not use um, you know, drums in the church and these things, and, and you're just going to bore the young people right out the door. But I completely disagree, and this is why. As I was once a young person wavering in the church myself, this is what I observed. Um, I don't believe that it's really because of the things we don't allow in the church that young people leave. But more so, it's about the things that we do allow to go on in the church. Because young people are watching everyone around them. And what they see is this, hypocrisy and confusion. The elderly people say, we need to be godly. We need to be following these principles. We have these standards that we have to follow. But then when it comes to certain things, they compromise like that. And they say, well, in most cases, but we want to reach our young people, so we're going to bring this music in. Just 
because it, we're going to make an exception to keep our young people. Or they see people that are preaching about being godly and holy, and then they find out that their head elder is having an affair with the deaconess. Or, you know, these things are taking place in our church, and it's really sad. But this is why young people leave. They see that it's not real, that it's not lasting, that people are a bunch of hypocrites. So what I would say is, show that you really believe what you preach. Get the young people involved. Give them something to do. Make them feel important. And nine times out of ten, they're going to stay. There's a, um, a quote that I want to read to you again. I have lots of quotes in this one, but um, uh, this is not my quote. Uh-oh. I don't know what's happened here, but okay, there we go. Kenneth Wood says, Christian parents and church leaders do young people a gross disservice when they blur the distinction between acceptable and non-acceptable music and condone a low quality of music and performance within the context of the church to keep the young people in the church. What a heavy responsibility they will carry for permitting their youth to enjoy sin without guilt. Now, we don't like that word guilt, but is guilt sometimes a good thing? If it's good guilt that turns us to Jesus, who can then take away the guilt. But what he's saying here is, many times we say it's okay to indulge in sin if it's going to get you out of sin. That doesn't make any sense. It completely contradicts itself. We need to be setting a higher standard for our young people. So what should we do then? First of all, hold music seminars in your church. And a lot of people are going to fight you on this, and they're not going to like it because many times you'll find it's the older people that don't want to hear it, not the younger people. A lot of times the younger people are open and they'll listen. Um, but try and hold music seminars in your churches, balanced music seminars. Let me emphasize that because there are a lot of, of people that aren't necessarily balanced in their view. But know what you believe about the biblical principles of music. Know what you believe yourself. That means educate yourself. And then teach it in a godly way godly balanced way to the youth. How are they going to know if they're not taught? And how can you teach them if you don't know what you believe yourself? And that's the problem is that the elderly people in the church, most of them don't know what they believe about this issue. So, of course, they're going to compromise and do whatever they think is necessary to keep the young people. But if they knew what they believed and they knew the principles of the Bible and they taught them in love to the young people, then you would have a lot less issues. Secondly, get your youth involved. And I, I think this is not just with music, but with anything. Get them involved in evangelism. Get them involved in music. And as you guide them, let them help pick out some of the songs for the, for the worship service. Um, don't let them do it unsupervised or unguided. They need guidance from the elderly, um, godly people. But let them pick out some of the songs. You know, there's some great... Songs out there that the young people can enjoy. You know, we sang some, Seek Ye First, As the Deer. There's some beautiful praise songs out there um, that they might enjoy. At the same time, however, show them the beauty of the good old hymns and sing and play them in a way that's not boring and stale to them, but show them that they can be beautiful and that there's a depth in the message and the, um, in the hymns. Don't sing like their funeral music. Remember that principle, please. <laughs> If they play an instrument or they sing, put them up front and let them play or sing along. Um, during song service, they play a guitar, you know, they have an acoustic guitar and they want to play along, let them get up there and play. Um, they play piano, 
Let them play during the offering or something. Um, also, get them going to nursing homes and singing and playing to the elderly. It's, it's a really good thing, um, and the elderly people love it. You know, young, young people are the leaders of, of our next generation of this church, and it's scary because they're less grounded than the generation that's in it now. But I think a lot of it is a lack of knowledge, um, a lack of desire, and it's our responsibility to teach them and to show them and love these great principles and to pray for them. And most importantly, to show them Jesus in a life that, that shows that we really believe what we're teaching, that we're here for a reason. Um, and they're going to respond to that. So just to, to summarize what um, I've said in this class as we finish up, um, let us remember that our praises should come as close to resembling the music of heaven as possible. And that's what this is all about. God has beautiful heavenly music. And because of sin, it's not perfect here. But God wants us to do what we can to make it resemble as closely to the angels' choir in heaven as we can. You know, we're all going to be singing a beautiful song to the Lamb at the end of time. And we're going to continue to worship in song throughout eternity. So why not practice that now? Practice singing together beautiful songs to the Lord see if we're on track here. Um, those who enter heaven must learn on earth a song of heaven, the keynote of which is praise and thanksgiving. Only as they learn this song can they join in singing it with the heavenly choir. I want to share an example with you of what I believe is a church that has a balanced view on music, and that's my dad's church. And I'm not just biased, but he's not the musician in the family, so he really can't take credit. But it was really neat because my parents, um, we lived in Indiana, but they always had a desire to start up a church in his hometown in Alabama. And so we moved there. It was a dark county, no church in the county. And um, they decided they wanted to plant this church. To, so to begin doing that, they started having what they called singspirations in their home every Friday night. And basically what this was is we had friends around that... Um, would come and they would bring their instruments, they would bring their violins and their guitars and their flutes and we had a piano there and people would come with their voices and we would invite people from the community to come to these Friday night inspirations. The majority of the time we would be singing these beautiful hymns and some of their old southern gospel songs that had appealed to them there. Um, and then we would share testimonies in between the songs of what the Lord had done for us, share scriptures that meant something to us and have prayer requests. And so many people from the community came out to these inspirations because, first of all, down south, they love music. They love the good old music. But it wasn't, you know, many times they have these, um, they just call them singings. And they go to these singings, and, you know, and people get up there doing their southern gospel, and they got the drums blaring and the electric guitars and, you know, all these things. And they, but what they found when they come to, came to my parents' home was they had a lot of those same types of music, but it was simple, and it was still beautiful, but it was, um, it was godly music. And they were really attracted to something that was somewhat similar, but yet so far different from anything that they had heard before. And they would come, and they would listen, and they would join in the singing, and they were so excited because this, this was a group of people who truly loved singing, and they believed what they sang, and it was an outreach, it was a huge testimony. And they started a church, 
Um, they have about 65 members now at that church, and a lot of the members are people from that community that came to those inspirations and were baptized. And, and that's actually in our last class today, we're going to be talking about music and evangelism and how we can reach out to people and, and through music, but in a, a godly, balanced way. And, you know, the, the conference leaders there in Alabama, they love to come to my dad's church because they said, we just love to hear you guys sing. You love singing, and it's so fun, and it just draws our hearts closer to heaven. And so although the sermon, a good, you know, godly sermon is always the main part of the church service, and it should be, but they've found this balanced way to use music in an appropriate, heavenly way to reach out to people and to prepare their hearts for the Word of God. And so when it comes to music and worship, we need to remember this. People in the world can get the world's music in the world. Those who are truly seeking are seeking for something different. And certain people may be attracted to our churches because of the certain type of music and things, but more than likely, if that's why they're drawn, most of them will not stay. Those who are really searching for a deeper relationship with the Lord are wanting something different than what they can find in the world. And you know what? The world can always do it better. They can always do worldly things better. We can try, and it's just... It's not the same, but when we do things God's way, and we do it in a, in a normal, balanced, but godly and heavenly way, people will be attracted to that, and they will be drawn to something that is so different, yet so beautiful, and it draws their hearts towards heaven. You know, that's the, what, that's the type of church that I want to be a part, about, or a part of. What about you guys? And uh, so hopefully can pray for our churches, pray for ourselves to present these things in love. And um, Jesus is coming soon. We need a higher standard in everything. So let's pray as we close this class out. Dear God, thank you so much for the gift of music and for just showing these wonderful things to us. We pray that we would be lights in our churches, in our community, that we could use music in an appropriate way to reach out to those around us and most importantly, to praise you in every word and every note. We love you so much, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.